Welcome back to the From Hevel to Eternity podcast. I'm Brian, and in this episode, we're continuing our chapter-by-chapter walk through the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Throughout the book of Matthew, we have seen Jesus display through his teachings and his miracles that he truly is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is described in chapter 1 as being the one who would save his people from their sins. So much so that you've probably gotten tired of me repeating it, but in this chapter, we'll once again see that no matter what actions Jesus takes, there are people who will not acknowledge Jesus as Christ. People who do not have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. In this episode, we will also see that even those who have this knowledge revealed to them by God the Father still struggle to understand what all that meant for Jesus' earthly ministry. In Matthew 16, we see signs demanded and parables taught. We see divine revelation and impactful teaching. We see Jesus denounce wickedness, declare hard truths, and demand sacrificial discipleship from his followers. I've broken this chapter into two subsections or parts. Both of these parts include opposing and yet symmetrical statements. Part A, verses 1 through 12, include questions, answers, warnings, and truths centered around Jesus and the religious elite. Part B, verses 13 through 28, include more questions, more answers, more warnings, and more truths, but this time centered around Jesus and his disciples. In the first part, you get questions like the religious elite questioning who Jesus is the disciples questioning what Jesus' teachings mean, and Jesus questioning his disciples' understanding and their faith. Again, in this first part, you also get warnings and truths that include Jesus directing warnings toward the Pharisees and Sadducees who were seeking a sign, and Jesus directing warnings at the disciples to be aware of the teachings of the religious elite. You also get the truth that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not yeast to be trusted in, while Jesus is the true bread of life. Part B has questions about who Jesus is, what the value of his soul is, and how those two questions are linked. Part B also has warnings against Satan's attempts to hinder Jesus' disciples, the risk associated with running from Jesus, and the worldly cost of following Jesus. There are truths related to who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, what Jesus came to do, suffer, be killed, and then experience resurrection, and lastly, truths about the reward coming to those who do not take up their cross and follow Jesus, who will come again in glory one day. These two parts highlight the signs people expected or demanded versus the signs that were actually to come to fruition. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted to see a sign of who Jesus was. Peter confesses who Jesus is, then Jesus provides a message of the signs that were to come that would display to all who Jesus was. This chapter starts with confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. If you remember back earlier in Matthew when we talked some about who these religious elite were, the Pharisees were super conservative and they followed a strict adherence to both the Jewish scripture and their own Jewish traditions. 
often making the mistake of elevating their traditions to the same level of authority as scripture itself. The Sadducees, they only believed in doctrine they could create from the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Outside of that, they took a more liberal approach to politics and religion. Together, these two groups made up the majority of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious elite who would eventually conspire against Jesus. Throughout all the gospel accounts, Jesus is not shy about pointing out the flaws in both groups' narrow and biased approaches. Here, these groups come together to demand from Jesus a sign from heaven. I'm not sure if the from heaven reference is going back to the religious elite's previous assertion that Jesus' other signs were from Satan, or if this sign was them asking for Jesus to show some amazing display of his divine glory. If that's the case, it would be a little ironic because Jesus declines to do that here in front of this audience. But at the start of the very next chapter, we get the transfiguration of Jesus and a huge display of his divine radiance and glory before an audience of just three hand-picked disciples. Either way, the sign was a test against Jesus, and Jesus declined the request. Jesus references their crude reading of the weather for signs. This is the fair weather, stormy sky part of verses 2 and 3. Think of today's nautical proverb, red sky at morning, sailors take warning, red sky at night, sailors delight. If the Jewish leaders were able to read and interpret the signs of the sky, why could they not read the spiritual signs already displaying who Jesus was and what kingdom he was ushering in? John MacArthur jokes that as primitive as their method of predicting the weather was, their ability to discern spiritual matters was worse. Jesus says that only an evil and adulterous generation would ask for a more miraculous sign than what has already been given. With everything Jesus had already displayed in just his short ministry already, only a hard-headed and hard-hearted group of people would require more data to make an assumption off of. You could probably hyperlink this assertion with Jesus' statement a few verses later that only the Father could have revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. There is this impossible-to-articulate push-and-pull relationship between divine revelation and personal responsibility. But obviously God had not given the religious elite eyes to see or ears to hear who Jesus truly was, and this led to a hardening of their hearts toward Jesus. The sign of Jonah is a reference to the same imagery that we saw in Matthew 12. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the whale before being vomited out by the fish, preaching to the Ninevites and leading to many being saved. How many more will Jesus, the perfect son of God, save when he overcomes death after three days in the tomb? Jonah, after all, was this fishy character who originally disobeyed God and ran toward death so that nobody would be saved. Jesus, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. He was perfectly obedient to God the Father and ran toward death so that all who believe in him would be saved. Jesus is greater than Jonah. We then get this confrontation between Jesus and his disciples over bread and feeding and yeast or leaven and religious teachings. At face value, it's all very random and confusing. The NLT translates Matthew 16, verses 6-12 through 12 as, Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
At this point, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, You have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at last they understood that he wasn't talking about yeast in the bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So watch and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not physical bread, even though the disciples were scrambling to try and figure it out and worried because they didn't bring any bread. Blumberg comments that because they forgot to bring any, they think that Jesus must be warning them against buying food from these groups of Jewish leaders. Jesus basically says, time out. I'm not talking about loaves of actual bread. He rebukes them, and by using the phrase, you of little faith, he points them back toward the spiritual context of the bread. It also points to the miracles that Jesus had performed. If they thought they were actually in need of a bread, why would they feel like they had to acquire it anyway? The disciples had no need for it. Didn't they remember that God provided the bread to the Israelites in the wilderness and to the disciples twice in the last few chapters? Side note, some people have argued that the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 were actually the same event, just retold differently. But here, Jesus puts an end to that claim by specifically calling them out as separate situations. But again, Jesus was looking more spiritually. It was actually a call against the teachings and influence of the religious elite. Yeast affects the whole loaf. If bad yeast influences a loaf, none of it will rise. We saw in chapter 9, Jesus announced that the people of Israel were lost, like sheep without a shepherd, which was a nod toward the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were not faithfully shepherding their flock, as opposed to Jesus, who is the true shepherd. Here, we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not the bread of life either. Only Jesus is that. Then we get a nice transition at the start of verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi. So, for those who like to trace Jesus' journeys on a map, Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was under the rule of Philip the Tetrarch, and it was previously known as Paneus, a place of worship for the Greek god Pan. We're not really told why Jesus decides to relocate here, but once he's there, Jesus sort of takes a poll with his disciples about who people say he is. He starts external. Who do other people say that the Son of Man is? Again, Jesus uses his favorite designation for himself when he says Son of Man, which has messianic connotations in and of itself. But some of the responses the disciples give for who other people say Jesus is are John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. Jesus is obviously popular with the Israelites. The people might not have got who Jesus really was, but if they were correlating Jesus' ministry with these great prophets, they obviously recognized that Jesus was something great. They all just failed to recognize the ultimate uniqueness of who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish. 
That ultimate uniqueness comes through even in how Jesus phrases his next question to the disciples themselves. Who do you say that I am? Now, I don't know if Jesus himself was trying to reference this, but the I am reference conjures up in my mind the Lord Yahweh revealing his personal covenant name to Moses in the book of Exodus, another place where someone was questioning who God was. Exodus 3 verses 13 and 14 say, Moses said to God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and tell them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, You shall tell the children of Israel this, I am has sent me to you. Peter's immediate response is spot on. He replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus immediately tells Peter that this revelation, while accurate, isn't his own, but provided to him by God the Father. Verse 17 says, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. Verse 17 echoes what Jesus spoke in Matthew 11, verses 25 and 27, which the NLT translates. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever, and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only God could reveal the truth of who Jesus was to Peter. Then we get this famous, sometimes misunderstood statement by Jesus, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter's name in Greek, Petros, almost literally means rock man, since the Greek for rock is Petra. So, it's a bit of a play on words by Jesus, though I want to be very clear. Jesus is not saying that on Peter or Peter's followers is the church built. The church is built on God's revelation to his people. God might use Peter to build and grow that purpose, but the kingdom of God's people is built on God. It's not built on Peter. The church is the new Israel, made up not of those who follow a specific genealogy, but by those who follow the specific Savior. Jesus, using the phrase, my church, places emphasis on the people having a new identity in Jesus. The word for church here, ecclesia, it's only used twice in Matthew, and it's used in verse 18 here, and again in chapter 18, verse 17. Interestingly, Matthew is the only gospel to use the term for church at all. In the other instances in chapter 18, it's a reference to a body of Jesus' followers gathering together in dialogue. Jesus is also clear that the gates of hell would not achieve victory over his church, the global body of his followers. Gates of hell, or Sheol, can be a direct reference to the entrance of physical death and the grave, and it's also an indirect reference to the realm of Satan, i.e. hell. Both of these are important to note, especially when paired with a statement Jesus makes in the next section. Neither the powers of death nor the domain of Satan will ever overtake the resurrection power that Jesus has over his followers. Verses 19 and 20 
say that the church, God's new people, made up of followers of Jesus, would be given the keys to the kingdom, which here is reference to the authority the church has to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus then commands his disciples not to tell anyone yet. Instead, it was God's plan to wait a little while longer before commissioning the disciples out into the world to go and make disciples of all nations at the end of Matthew. And the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, at which time Peter actually takes the lead in addressing the people and building up the church. Blumberg points out that in the full context of the chapter, verses 20 makes sense because Peter's view of Jesus as Messiah is still inadequate. Peter is not yet prepared for the road to the cross. So this section of scripture should really cause us to ask three questions. Who is Jesus? What do we do with the answer to that question? And what does our answer now demand of us? If we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the only Son of the living God, then we should confess he is Lord and submit fully to him. That submission should demand our attention and should ignite evangelism. If we believe Jesus is who he is and have placed our faith in him, how could we not tell others about him? The end of the chapter focuses on Jesus' coming sign, his death and resurrection, and then what the implications of that has on Jesus' followers. It is the first of three predictions about his own death and resurrection in Matthew. See also chapter 17, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 18. Verse 21 here says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised up. Jesus teaches that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer. Think of the prophesied suffering servant in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. A couple verses from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and acquainted with disease. He was despised as one from whom men hid their face, and we didn't respect him. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our suffering, yet we consider him plagued, struck by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Also note that Jesus states very clearly that he will defeat death, an indication that the gates of hell and physical death would be defeated forever by Jesus. Despite all this, Jesus didn't take that teaching very well. The Bible actually says that Peter took Jesus off to the side and he rebuked him over those statements. Peter just could not accept that no matter what scripture might have prophesied, that if Jesus was truly the Messiah, he would have to suffer death. Peter might get a bad rap for that here, but we find out throughout the rest of the gospel story that all of the disciples struggle with this to some degree. Jesus responds to Peter pretty harshly, pointing out Peter's focus on worldly things. And at the end of verse 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. 
Bloomberg's comments are that trying to thwart God's plan for Jesus' life is in fact the role of the devil. It's not the role of a disciple. This chapter really highlights Peter's eyes being opened by God, but also that his understanding still was limited by his worldly desires and his worldly expectations. In verse 17, we see God the Father revealing Jesus' identity to Peter, and then in verses 22 and 23, we see Peter's lack of understanding what that truly meant. Worldly thinking is not from above, but from below. Satan's power comes when he refocuses our attention from God's glory, and he tries to turn it toward earthly things that don't last, toward the vapor and the mist of this world. To steal from my own title, Satan tries to get us to focus on and to prioritize the hevel around us and not the works of Jesus. As much as Satan tries to execute a ministry of hindrance against Jesus and his followers, it's important to remember that Satan's realm, the gates of hell, will never prevail against the kingdom of God and his church. The word for hindrance or stumbling block, it often references a rock someone might trip on. So it might be Jesus extending his play on words over Peter's name, Petros, rock man, maybe stumbling rock man in this case. Ryrie points out that verses 13 through 20, they're on Messiahship. Verses 21 through 23, they're on atonement, Jesus's work on the cross. And then verses 24 through 28, they're about discipleship. So Jesus ends with a call. He has broken down that the religious leaders were speaking falsely and that he is the truth, providing two avenues for people to turn towards. Now Jesus demands a response to those distinctions. Follow the cultural influence of the leaders of that time, or take up your cross and follow the leader of all times. The characteristics of following the call, they're pointed. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Lose your life for his sake to find life. Forfeit the world to gain eternal life. Be repaid with an eternity in the presence of God. Jesus is clear here. This call is costly. It could cost us our lives, and in fact it does cost the disciples theirs. But he's also clear that not responding to the call is costly too. Taking up your cross and following Jesus will result in forfeiting worldly things. He minces no words. Following Jesus involves sacrifices in this life. The alternative path is refusing this call and turning away from Jesus. This might result in more earthly gain, but ultimately it will end in forfeiting your soul. The choices fleeting worldly gain, or secure eternal salvation. How does who Jesus is affect our response to this call? Well, if we really believe Jesus is who he says he is, the response becomes clear. Taking up our crosses and enduring sacrifice, mockery, and persecution becomes possible only through a trust in Jesus being who the Bible says he is. Jesus came to fulfill all of scripture. The truth that he walked on this earth lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected from the dead, and is coming back again can fuel a Christian's faith. The blessings Jesus has promised are certain as well. Just a few quick notes to finish up. 
in chapter 16, verse 27, it's not a reference to our good works having to outweigh our bad works, but instead it's a reference to those who are faithful to God, who are steadfast followers of Jesus, taking up their crosses to chase after him until the end. Verse 28 can be confusing as well, so I wanted to speak to that some. Verse 28 says, Most certainly I tell you, there are some standing here who will in no way taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the word for kingdom could also be translated as royal power. And this passage is directly followed in chapter 17 by the transfiguration of Jesus, where all the radiance and royal power of Jesus is on full display. So the phrase here, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, is seen by a lot of commentators as being fulfilled by the transfiguration of Jesus, to which Peter, James, and John were all witnesses. Next episode, we'll start with that event, the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. Thanks for listening. If you're not already doing so, please follow us on the From Hevel to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on all my latest podcasts, videos, and blog posts. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is the public domain. There were a couple in there that I called out as being from the New Living Translation, or the NLT Bible, and that's copyright of Tyndale House Foundation. Until next time, I love y'all.